All right, so we'll go through, and as mentioned a few weeks ago, we're going to learn the New Testament survey and a series of 15 main points. Um, and these 15 points, uh, 15 words, if you can get these down, you're going to know the New Testament very, very well. So today we are on point number one, which is the incarnation, okay? And uh, we'll describe what that is, but this is the very beginning, the birth of Jesus, because this is obviously where the New Testament is going to start is in the beginning of Jesus's life, and as a result, what took place. Uh, now, I'm gonna show you a picture of when, because uh, you're kind of thinking, all right, kind of felt a little bit like summer today. And uh, you know, you normally think of Christmas in July or something like this, where people say they do something special. So we're gonna have Christmas in April. Uh, no, it's May now, isn't it? Oh my goodness, I don't even know what month it is. Um, I know some of y'all don't know, feel like me, you don't know what day, to, day it is of the week, um, but it is, May, but we're still going to look at the incarnation. And this is one of those things that I want to uh, uh, also talk about. But when you look at, as we celebrate Christmas, obviously we talk about Jesus' birth normally the month of December, and we don't talk about it a whole lot throughout the rest of the year. But quite honestly, uh, the birth of Jesus should be something that we celebrate all year long because this is the story of how God came looking for us. And so now this is a picture that we would normally see around Christmas time, right? Uh, so some of us would have these scenes in our yards, the Christmas lights and different things like this. Uh, and these are wonderful. One of our uh, favorite things to do as a family is to drive around town and to see different Christmas lights uh, and to see um, just someone that's coming alongside and showing us uh, just the story of Christ. We, we, we love going around seeing that. But what tonight we're going to look at is that it's a little bit different than maybe what we have anticipated or even thought of in the past. Because as we look at this picture here, um, we, we, we notice here, uh, so this would be baby Jesus right here in the middle. This would obviously be Joseph over here and Mary on the side. And obviously there's always some animals hanging around. Uh, this person over here on the left is uh, symbolizing the shepherd. And then this crew over here would be called the, what, the, the wise men or the magi. And as we're going to look at tonight, um, while this is a wonderful betrayal, this is not exactly accurate of all the people that were there that first night when Jesus was born. And so we're going to get into that, how all these specific um, people come into this scene and what it means um, for, for our understanding of who Jesus is. Now, as we go through your notes here, the first thing to know is, as, as we're talking about incarnation, is that incarnate comes from Latin and it means in the flesh. So the in means in and carnis flesh. So when we say incarnation, it is meaning that God is coming in the flesh to us. So this is about the birth of Jesus, obviously, but it's saying that he actually came in the flesh. So this is not God saying that he's just going to go and continue to live in heaven away from us, but actually he came as an incarnation. So God wrapped himself in human flesh in the person of Jesus. And so as we look at this tonight, uh, we're going to notice that how the incarnation is such an incredible part of our story, um, not just once a year, but this is the really the beginning in many ways, obviously, of Jesus' life, but a huge component as far as Jesus's birth goes. So there were multiple prophecies that took place regarding uh, Jesus's uh, birth. Uh, and we're going to look at some of these prophecies here. Uh, you should have them on your handout there. If not, you can just write the verse reference down because I'm going to go through these super quick. 
uh, and you won't be able to write all the verses down, but you will be able to write the references down. But um, have you ever seen um, any of those TV shows or movies that kind of starts at the end and then works its way back? I don't know if you've ever seen one of those before. But it's like it starts here and says, okay, now two hours before that happened, this happened. Then one day before that, it goes backwards. I'm going to go backwards to the Old Testament to show you how these different elements of prophecy come about. So we'll, we'll start in one place called Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 where the prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. So someone's going to come out of David, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So they're going, okay, so we're looking for a Messiah, someone to come in from the line of David, who David was the king. He's going to come from that family, and he is going to reign as king and deal wisely. But here's what verse 6 says. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, it doesn't even say that this name of this person that's coming, it, it's, it's not saying that the Lord will give righteousness or the Lord provides righteousness. It says the Lord is our righteousness, which makes sense understanding our understanding of Jesus, that it's not that um, our righteousness actually comes from the righteousness of Christ, or it's not the righteousness of our own. I don't want to go before God and say, God, I want you to see me through my righteousness. I want God to see me through the righteousness of Christ. Well, then we go a little bit further in Jeremiah 31, verse 15. It says, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And so there's this prophecy here in Jeremiah 31, 15, that there's going to be some type of uh, massacre that takes place here in Ramah. Lamentation, they're, they're sorrowful, they're bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So there's some type of prophecy in Jeremiah 31 where there's going to be a massacre of many children. Now, if you know the story of Christ, what you know is that the um, Herod was so... Um, uh, I guess uh, he felt threatened by this promise of a coming king that he sought to find a baby boy and massacred all the young children. And this prophecy is fulfilled because all the babies that were killed around the time of Christ. Um, next, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, uh, just to make sure you understand the significance of what's being said here is that Bethlehem, as we've always heard and sung in Christmas carols, Bethlehem is a tiny town, uh, and it even says it's too little to be among the clans of Judah. So Judah, imagine, is one kind of section of the nation of Israel, and Judah is just like, imagine, it's almost like a state, right? But Bethlehem's so small, it's not even one of the counties, like Greenville County or something. So for anybody who, if you were born and raised in a small town, right, you kind of know that. Uh, it's, it's a big thing if you get a red light or if you have a restaurant or something like that. And most of America is determined by how many Walmarts they have, is determined how big they are, right? Okay, well, this is a small, small community. And in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, hundreds of years before Jesus is born, it says that there's going to be someone who's born here, someone who is born 
that is uh, from from this specific city. So it's going to be very laser focused as to where it's coming from. From Bethlehem, from this that tiny town of Bethlehem. And there is one other person who's come from Bethlehem. It's the oh, line of David. And from this, it says that he's too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So not only does it prophesy that someone is going to be born who's going to be ruler in Israel, the, the wild thing about this prophecy is that his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So how is one going to be born? How is one going to be born in some type of way where they are actually um, from an ancient time? Where that they are in a place where they are for a long time away, that they are living uh, and yet somehow from this, there is this promise that there's coming someone who's going to come alongside and whose birth is going to happen, but the birth is going to be from old times, from ancient days. Now, um, when we get to Isaiah chapter 7, uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, what we're going to see here, it says that therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, here's this prophecy that kind of um, narrows down the scope. Okay, now, if the prophecy had said the Messiah is going to have a baby boy that has brown hair, that narrows it down to a percentage, okay? Or he's going to have brown eyes or blue eyes or something. That narrows it down, but you still got so many people that get claim to that. If you narrow this down to say, a virgin is going to give birth to a child that really narrows down the possibilities here. And so there's this prophecy about how this child is going to be born of whom no man is going to get the credit and his name shall be Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us, right? And so here's this, this God's going to give us a sign and there's going to be a virgin that's going to conceive and going to bear a son. And we're going to call his name Emmanuel. Now in Isaiah chapter nine, verse seven, it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, okay? No end. Um, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and up to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So once again, there's this, pro there's this prophecy about someone who's going to reign on the throne of David, coming from the line of David. He's going to establish it. He's going to have it with justice and righteousness, and it's going to be a kingdom that is forevermore. Now, we're not talking about one or two or three term limits here. Someone who's going to reign forever, and that is an impressive amount of time that obviously just no simple man can get the credit for. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, Jesse was the father of David who was from Bethlehem. And so in Isaiah, um, hundreds of years before the time of Christ, there's a prophecy that there's going to, someone who's going to come from the stump of Jesse. So the stump, so it's almost like it's been cut off, but something's going to sprout back up here. So imagine this, the, the tree of David's kingdom has been cut down, but there's going to be a shoot that's going to come up and it's actually going to bear fruit and it's going to be established even more. In Hosea chapter 11, verse one, it says, when, Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So here's this prophecy about a loving of a child and also calling them out of Egypt. 
And we'll see, actually, Jesus went to go live in Egypt for a short period in his young life. Uh, look at this next one. Psalm chapter 72, verse 9 and 10. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Sea bring gifts. Now you may go, now what in the world does this have to do with anything? Let me, let me show you something real quick here um, to, to do. Desert tribes bow down before him. So if we think through the incarnation, the, the time of Christ being born, was there someone who lived out in the desert, out on the outskirts of the town, out in the wilderness, and they kind of lived as tribes in their occupation that would come and bow down before this king? It would be, well, I can think of one group of people who worked in the desert tribes. Those were shepherds. So here's this prophecy about shepherds, a, a tribe of people who work in the desert coming in to bow down before this king. Um, and then it says, may the kings of Tarshish, well, these are men that are not of this area. They're a little bit more out, okay? Uh, and the coastlands, the kings of Sheba and Sea bring, what are they saying? It says, we're gonna render him tribute and we're gonna bring him what? Gifts. So that's why you probably remember one of the Christmas songs, we three kings of what? Orient are, right? Here, here's the Orient, these places. And so in Psalm chapter 72, what do we have here? We have a prophecy of the shepherds coming and bowing down before a king. We have the enemies of Jesus. I failed to meet that. There were government leaders that were trying to kill him that couldn't um, catch up to him and were basically laid in the dust. And here are these kings, these wise men from afar who were bringing tribute and bringing very, very expensive gifts. Hundreds of years before the time of Christ. And here we have this prophecy of what Christ's incarnation would, would look like. Um, let's continue on just a little bit more. Um, uh, here's a prophecy that says that the Messiah would come from David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, it says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now this comes right after this wonderful moment where King David says, God, you have blessed me so much. I've been thinking, I know what I want to do to bless you. And God goes, what is it, David? He goes, I want to build you a house. And God goes, really? You're going to build me a house? He's like, yep, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be big and really expensive. And, and it's just going to be awesome. You're going to love it. And, and God says, no, you're not going to build me a house, first off, because uh, I don't need one, and there's nothing in heaven on earth that could contain me. Number two, you're a man of bloodshed, and so you're not going to be the one who's building me the house, but someone after you will. So then what God says is, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And he goes, what do you mean? Well, when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down, you die with your fathers, I'm going to raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So everybody, the next generation saw this as a prophecy fulfilled in David's son, who was king, whose name was Solomon. But then you look at verse 13 and look what it says. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What? Forever. Now Solomon, he um, served as king for a few decades but last time I checked, he is still not sitting upon a throne. Solomon died, as every other king did. And so there's this prophecy that someone is going to come from David's family, someone in the lineage of David, 
David down to Solomon and so forth a few generations later. And someone's going to come, but his kingdom is not going to be for a few decades. It's actually going to be forever, which also shows us to narrow down the scope even more that the Messiah would come from Jacob. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, here's what said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So now you might understand a little bit why. Uh, I think there was a star that these wise men followed, but also probably why there's a star on the top of many Christmas trees we try to celebrate, right? There's a star. There's going to be something that's going to come out of Jacob. So that was a specific sign of Isaac, and that basically saying this one who the scepter, the king holds a scepter, He's going to come from Israel, but it's not going to come from Esau's family line. It's going to come from Jacob's family line. Narrow down it even more. It says the Messiah would come from Judah. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, Jacob has 12 sons. And in this prophecy, all the way back in Genesis chapter 49, it says where the Messiah, which tribe he's going to come from. It says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So someone from Judah which we would know as the lion of the tribe of Judah, that the king and the Messiah is going to come from that one, nowhere else, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So in Genesis, all the way back in Genesis chapter 49, it promises there's going to come a king from the line of Judah, so not from the line of Ephraim, not from the line of uh, Dan, not from the the line of Naphtali or Levi. No, no, no. The, the king is going to come from Judah. And the ruler staff me between his feet. And, and what he's after here is the obedience of the peoples. That is ethnic groups. So this is not just his nation. There's going to be some king that comes from his family line that all the nations are going to bow down and want to obey him. If we keep going further back in the story, the Messiah would come from Isaac. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 19, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So someone from Isaac's family, there's going to be an everlasting covenant with. We uh, know this also, uh, this is about Abraham, but in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This says Isaac, it should be Abraham on your notes here, but saying that here is the families, that someone's coming from the family of Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed because of. And if we go all the way back, all the way, all the way, all the way back. So we've moved our way from, I guess, Jeremiah in the Old Testament, and we're going to come all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. Let me, let me get this story for you. God created the heavens and the earth. On the sixth day, he created a man. Man was alone, he created woman, and he put them in this garden, in this wonderful place, and said, you can live here in my presence forever. I just got one rule, and I want you to respect me. Know that I am the Lord. And they disobeyed. They rebelled, and so they were kicked out of the garden. Now, what takes place in here is that we see that the birth of Jesus was never plan B. The birth of Jesus was never a last kind of ditch effort to think about later, this was originating all the way back from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God delivers punishment out to Adam, Eve, and Satan. And he looks there 
at Satan, the serpent that has tempted Adam and Eve to fall away from God. And in Genesis 3, 15, right after they've sinned, he looks at Satan in the face and says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the, what? Woman. Woman. Now, why not the man? Like, what? why is Eve getting picked on and, and, and not Adam here, right? And then it says, in between your offspring and her offspring. Now, the reason why I'm highlighting this is, is that word really, offspring there, is seed. And without being too awkward here, normally, anatomically speaking, a man is supposed to have the offspring, the man is supposed to have the seed. And yet in Genesis 3.15, it says something very weird that's not said really anywhere else in Scripture. It, basically, what it says is that Satan, there's going to be a, a war between your seed and her seed. And so in Genesis 3.15, there, there is a prophecy right here, right on the page, saying there's going to come some birth one day that's only going to come from her, from a woman. No man will get the credit for this birth. So in Genesis 3.15, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, there's a prophecy about a virgin birth and that there's going to be some battle that's going to happen here between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, someone is going to come from a woman that no man will get the credit for the birth. And what's going to happen is he's going to bruise you on the head. It's a fatal blow, but you're going to bruise his heel. So something is going to take place there that in some action, some man born of a woman, not born of man, in some defiant act, is going to be crushed in his heel. And at that same time, what's gonna happen? That moment is going to crush Satan's head. And that is seen there in the cross of Jesus Christ where he is crucified in his, what? In his feet there. It is a nail goes through his feet, but in that moment where he thinks, I've got the woman's seed now crushed in the feet, I'm gonna be good. In that very moment, he is crushing the enemy's head and reversing everything that goes back to the garden. So I, I show you all this to say, this is not uh, Bethlehem and Jesus' birth was not a, a few thousand years in this. God going, what are we going to do? We need to come up with something. This is all the way back in Genesis 3.15, the promise. There is going to come a virgin birth, an incarnation of which no man can get the credit for. And that God uh, says out, there's going to be this defining moment sometime in history where the cross of Jesus Christ, when, he, when that uh, man born of a virgin is going to be struck in the heel he will strike the enemy's head once and for all. So I say all that to say, look, this, this story is not a, a um, come made up along the way. And so what I want to do is now that you're in Matthew for a second, because this brings us up, we've looked through a lot of these different people. And as we mentioned last week, when we get to uh, the story of Christ in the New Testament, you wouldn't think that the most engaging thing for them to do is to start off with a genealogy but that's what Matthew, once again, who is speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience, that's exactly where he wants to go. Because look what it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of what? David, David. the king, and the son of Abraham, the father of the faith. Those two key figures he is trying to say right there at the very beginning. I want you to know that he comes from the line of David and the son of Abraham. And then verse two, see if you recognize these names that we have just mentioned. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, 
and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Here are all these people that are mentioned in uh, Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, all four that the Messiah would be prophesied would be coming from. And in Matthew chapter one, he's trying to show you all these prophecies in the Old Testament. Jesus comes from this physical lineage. In fact, if you go down to verse six, look what you find. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, the prophecy about Jesse, the prophecy about David, all these different people are coming alongside into Jesus's genealogy. And then it goes down into verse 16. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And so here's this lineage that they're saying, hey, all these prophecies in the Old Testament talking about the Messiah, Jesus is in this family lineage. All these um, prophecies pointing towards the person of Christ. So in this, we see how the prophecies in the Old Testament are pointing to this incarnation, but also the progression as far as how the scripture uh, narrative comes about. And here's what I mean, that uh, when God's people disobeyed God's rule, they were forbidden to remain in God's presence. If I want to give you a big progression of the Bible here, this is where it comes down to. When God's people disobeyed God's rule, they were for, forbidden to remain in God's presence. So if we say God's people as Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God's rule. Don't eat from that tree. They were forbidden to remain in God's presence, which was the Garden of Eden. The plan for God from the very beginning was that God would create man to be his people, obey my rule, and as long as you obey that rule, you get to be in my presence. But they decided they wanted something very different. Jesus came to obey God's rule to welcome us back into God's presence. So the whole goal of Jesus is to reverse what happened in the garden. And if you think about the narrative of scripture, what you'll find is that all throughout the history of the Bible, you will find times where God's people are being exiled of a place because they have not obeyed God's commands. Adam and Eve are exiled out of the garden, right? Um, eventually there's going to be a time where Israel and Judah are exiled out of the promised land because of their continued sin. Um, and then even this, the whole story of Jesus is to get the people back into God's presence. Uh, and uh, even, even the tabernacle and the temple was this sign of the need that we have to be in the presence of God, but because of sin, we can't be there. Now, heaven, what we're aiming for and, and longing for is heaven is when all of God's people live under God's rule in God's presence. This is going back to what Eden was supposed to be. When God's people and only God's people are in there, we're living under God's rule. There is no sin. There is no disobedience or rebellion. And we are finally in God's presence, face to face, uh, and there's no separation in there whatsoever. Now, the reason why this is such an incredible thing for us to behold is this. Sin is the attempt to elevate oneself above the authority of God. Every time we come down to this, sin is your and my attempt at saying, I don't have to listen to you, God. I can do whatever I want to. I don't have to listen to your authority. You're not the boss of me. Every time we sin, pride is coming in and saying that we belong uh, to be able to make our own decisions. And this is what is amazing. If you think of sin as the attempt to elevate ourselves above the authority of God, then what, how, how does that take place? Follow this example. If you look in 
Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, it speaks about this dazzling angelic figure who wanted to be above God. He wanted to basically take the throne for himself. There's an, and there's an angel who wanted to run things, who didn't like the way that God was running things and wanted to take matters into his own hands. We would know that angel to be a fallen angel named Satan or Lucifer, right? That here he was, this angel that decided he wanted to do his own things. He wanted to escalate himself above God. And so when we find him in the garden, what is he doing? He is trying to convince Adam and Eve, you don't have to listen to him anymore. Hey, if you eat of this tree, you can do whatever you want to do. You're mm -hmm. above him. You don't need it anymore. You don't have to listen to him anymore. So sin is always this attempt to elevate ourselves above the authority of God. And this is what makes Jesus's incarnation so glorious to behold. That redemption is the path of God humbling himself to become one of us. So sin is us trying to escalate ourselves or elevate ourselves to the place where we shouldn't be. But the whole part of redemption is not the fact that we can make ourselves up to God or that we could somehow reach above him, but that God actually came down to us. It's the whole reversal of it. In fact, if you even think about it this way, uh, you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Remember the Tower of Babel? What were they doing? Building this tower really, really high, really, really high. Why? Because they wanted to be able to be on the same place of God. And what does God do? He scatters it. Mankind has always been trying to work our way up to God. And every time we climb, we realize how much further we have to go. So sin causes us to escalate, think we can reach it. And what happens is, is that Jesus takes down all of our um, towers. <laughs> he knocks down all of our structures and we are laid low. And right then at that point, that's when he descends. We can't ascend to him. He descends to us. And so redemption is this path of God humbling himself to become one of us. And, and I say that because this is an important thing for us to consider, but why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? And you go, well, because it was prophesied that, right? We know that that was the little town of Bethlehem. That's where he was supposed to be born. But I'm asking you why at that specific time was even Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem? Now think about this with you for a second. The reason they were in Bethlehem was because Caesar Augustus demanded a census to be taken to show the world how great he was. Okay. Here's the emperor of the Roman empire, right? And why did Mary and Joseph have to leave where they originally are from and go back to Joseph's home community of Bethlehem? It was the little town that he left and he wasn't going to be a part of anymore. Why was he there on the specific day that Jesus born? Don't miss this. The, the irony is just shocking. Okay. The irony is this, the Caesar, who was in all practical sense of the word, the most powerful, prideful man on earth, wanted everybody to know how great he was. So he wanted them to go around and start counting how many people belonged to him. And so that forced Joseph and his very pregnant wife, Mary, to have to scurry all the way back to Bethlehem, which they normally would not have been in. Now, it's one thing if Joseph still lived in Bethlehem. Okay, well, sure, that makes sense. The timing of Jesus' birth is just shocking because if Caesar is not making this declaration that they have to take a census, Joseph and Mary are not going to travel back to Joseph's family's hometown to Bethlehem, and Jesus would have been born in Nazareth and not fulfilled the prophecy that he'd been born in Bethlehem. Even this, Caesar is literally, I mean, don't, don't miss this, 
he is he is demanding the census be taken to show how great he is all the while that really what's happening is that god is moving caesar's hand to show the world how humble jesus will become the great emperor was merely a pawn in the hand of god to get joseph and mary to the city of bethlehem at the time of jesus birth caesar thinks he's going look how great i am to see how many people i have and jesus is saying look how great i am because I'm coming like one of you. So Caesar's wanting to puff himself up and he's moving all these people around while Jesus is coming down to the people. It's absolutely shocking, unlike anything else that we ever really see in, in any other type of way of history. And so um, Caesar wanted to show how great he was by elevating himself above the people. God showed how great he was by becoming one of the people. And this is the irony of what's taking place in that. Um, in fact, I actually, I went to one of um, my most trusted commentaries just to think through some of this. And it's the uh, big picture story Bible that we got our kids when we were really, they were really young. And there's this irony that it shows about what Caesar was doing to try to puff himself up and show them all the while that Jesus not only is being uh, coming down into earth, but he's also showing how, how humble he'll become. Jesus' humility was shown by emptying himself to become a human, born in a small town, delivered in a manger, and announced to people on the fringes. And we're going to unpack that here in a second, but I want you to don't miss it. He, Jesus' humility, first and foremost, he emptied himself and he, what Philippians 2 says, he became a human. Not only was he human, he was born in a small town, or some of you would say podunk, town, if you know that terminology, right? Podunk town. He's delivered, not in a hospital, not in a um, nice house even. He's, he's delivered in a manger. And he wasn't announced to the kings. He was announced to the shepherds, the people on the fringes. And this is the way that Jesus decides that he wants to announce his coming. So this is complete paradigm shift of what Caesar is trying to do at the moment, show how great and wonderful he is. Jesus is showing uh, how great he is by becoming this humble. And so I want to show you this just for a quick second. Um, let me make sure I get this set up for you. Um, but I'm going to show you this video here uh, just to sort of get you. This is something from the Bible Project. Some of you have maybe seen the Bible Project before, but this should take over on your screen for you to see it. I think it's a great summary of, of what's happening at the time of Christ. And so let me show you this to you really quick. The Gospel of Luke. Luke investigated many of the earliest eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus and then composed this account. And the story begins up in the hills of Jerusalem, the place where Israel's ancient prophets said that God himself would come one day to establish his kingdom over all the earth. In the city is the temple run by the priests, and one of them, named Zechariah, was working in the temple when he had a vision that freaks him out. An angel appears and says that he and his wife will have a son. What's this all about? Well, Zechariah and his wife, we're told, are very old. They've never been able to have children. And Luke's setting up a parallel here with Abraham and Sarah, the great ancestors of Israel, because they too were very old and could never have kids. Yet God gave them a son, Isaac, which is how the whole story of Israel began. And so Luke's implying here that God's about to do something that significant for this people once again. The angel tells Zechariah to name the son John. 
And then he says that the son's going to fulfill a promise of Israel's ancient prophets, that somebody would come one day to prepare Israel to meet their God when he arrived to rule in Jerusalem. Because right now, Jerusalem is ruled by the Romans. Mm. Yeah, specifically, it's governed by a man named Herod, who's a puppet king under the Roman Empire. Mm. And so the Jewish people wanted nothing more than to be free and govern themselves in their own land. So this is shocking news. Everything's going to change. God's on his way. But how is he going to arrive? Well, to find out, Luke takes us out of Jerusalem and then up into a small town in the hills of an out-of-the-way region called Galilee. And there we find a young woman named Mariam, or we call her Mary. She was engaged to be married. And then an angel appears to Mary saying that she's going to have a son. She's supposed to name him Jesus, which in Hebrew means the Lord saves. And he will be a king like David who will rule over God's people forever. And then Mary asks, okay, well, how is this possible? Because I'm a virgin. And she's told that the same Holy Spirit that brought life and light out of darkness in Genesis chapter 1 is going to generate life inside her womb. God is about to bind himself to humanity through the conception and the birth of the Messiah. And so Mary goes from some backwoods, no-name girl to the future mother of the king? Exactly. In fact, she sings a song about how this reversal of her own social status points to a greater upheaval to come. Through her son, God's going to bring down rulers from their thrones and exalt the poor and the humble. He's going to turn the whole world order upside down. So when Mary was really pregnant, she and her fiance, Joseph, had to go down to Bethlehem. Yeah, there was a decree across the Roman Empire about new taxes, and so everybody had to go get registered in the town of their family line. There are so many visitors in Bethlehem, they can't find a guest room. And so the only place they can find is a spot where animals sleep. Now nearby were some shepherds with their flocks, and an angel appears, which of course freaks them out. But they're told to celebrate, because tonight in Bethlehem, a savior has been born. Yeah, they're told to go and find this baby and they'll know that it's the Messiah because he's going to be wrapped up and laying in a grimy feeding trough. Yeah, which is pretty gross. Totally. And then these shepherds who aren't very clean themselves, they go and find the newborn Jesus in this really dingy place and their minds are blown. They go home wondering what on earth is about to happen. And this is all really strange. I mean, if God's really coming to save the world, this isn't how you would expect him to arrive. Born in an animal shelter to a teenage girl, celebrated by no-name shepherds. Exactly. I mean, everything is backwards in Luke's story, and that's the point. He is showing how God's kingdom was first revealed in these dirty places among the poor, because Jesus is here to bring salvation by turning our world order upside down. So there's a great summary version. Once again, this is a group called the Bible Project who puts these together. A wonderful thing. I'd always recommend you guys checking out. But I, I love what he's showing there. And, and as I was watching again, it made me think of that if Jesus would have been born in a palace, let's just say that he was the son of the reigning king or governor in the area. If he came from heaven, that would be humility, right? To be born into a palace from where he'd been. But it's almost as if God is going, 
I need to make sure you understand how big of a jump from where I've been to where I'm willing to go for you. And so that's why it's not just on earth. It's to a, to a, in a city of Bethlehem, that's a podunk town. And there's not even a, a, a safe place to be born in, but he goes in and as placed in a feeding trough where animals are and the lowliest of shepherds come in. Like God is trying to show this is how big of a difference that Jesus would leave this place to come down to us. It wasn't him just saying, you know what? This is going to be a hard little vacation where I don't have uh, nice hot water every day. And this is significant what he's doing to show that this whole flip on its head. And so the perception of which we have um, the, the story of Jesus, we look at the prophecy and we look at the progression throughout scripture, but some of the perceptions, if we look at Matthew chapter one and two, I will remind you, as we looked last week, Matthew was written to Jewish people. Luke was not written to Jewish people. It was written to who? Remember? It was written to the Gentiles, right? Everybody else. So there is Matthew's writing to the Jewish people. Luke writes to Gentiles, all of us, which makes sense. If you are going to hear, if, if it's at Christmas time and if you hear uh, someone read from the Christmas story or you hear uh, Linus on the Charlie Brown Christmas, um, I'll tell you what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Like when those moments, the only two options you have is either that comes from Matthew or that comes from Luke, those, those two books. Mark starts when Jesus is a 30-year-old preacher, okay? John starts with a theological concept and then just starts straight out of the chutes going there. So Matthew really focuses in on Joseph's side of the story, and Luke focuses in on Mary's side of the story. So Matthew looks at Joseph because, once again, Joseph comes from the line of King David, and Luke looks at the side of Mary, I think, because Luke was a physician and also interviewed Mary later in her life. So if you're looking at Matthew chapter one, we've already looked at the genealogy happened uh, first off. And then if you look at Matthew chapter one, verse 18, look what it says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, if you're thinking, wait a minute, the Christmas story, I feel like, where's all the shepherds? And where's they couldn't find room in the end? It just, here it is, as an angelic vision to uh, Joseph, not Mary, because this is the lineage, the Jewish lineage from David. They're trying to say, let me show you where Joseph is, falls into this. So Joseph feels like he has been shamed by his betrothed wife, which is more serious an engagement, not quite married yet. He has been publicly shamed. And what does he do? He decides to divorce her quietly. He's not going to shame her, even though she has shamed him, which shows a lot about the character. An angel comes to him and says, this is from the Holy Spirit. 
you're going to have to just endure some bad reputation for a little bit, but you take her as your wife. You do not know her until this child is born because you will not get the credit for this birth. Only God can get the credit for this birth. And then all of a sudden it's verse 25 and here he is. Go, whoa, that, that skipped really quick, right? Just go straight to the heart of Matthew. And in fact, uh, if you look at Matthew chapter two, what happens, the next thing it says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And goes, whoa, that, that happened uh, very, very quick. Um, and, and we're going to, I'll show you a little bit more on this here in just a second. But that's Matthew's side. And if you see it, really, you have the, the dream and the angelic presentation of Joseph. And then you get the wise men. And then Jesus is a 30-year-old man starting his ministry. That's how quick it goes in. Now I want you to turn over to Luke chapter one for a moment, um, a few pages over to Luke. And most people believe that once again, physician, Dr. Luke, he uh, actually interviewed Mary uh, as an older woman to say, I really want to hear what happened. Um, and so um, in Luke chapter one, uh, starting in verse five, it says that the birth of John the Baptist was foretold. And then you get down to verse 26. Look at this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Want to make sure you know he's from the king's line. He should be the king. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Emmanuel, God with us. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, not just a little while, not just one term, forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. This is more than just geographical Israel. This is going all over forever this kingdom is going to be about. You see Mary comes and visits Elizabeth later on, and then uh, Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat that we know of, starting in verse 46. Um, you go down to chapter two, and you're also, this is the story that if someone reads the Christmas story at Christmas time, this is what we're very, very familiar with, and uh, I'm going to read it, and then we're going to make a couple of comments on it. Uh, in those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered because he's so important. He wants everybody to know how important he is. This is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, time came for her to give birth that would not have been where she had been had not Caesar made this declaration. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Now, once again, just I'm going to read that again. A manger is just the feeding trough, Okay. It doesn't say stable. It's a manger is where the cows and the horses would eat their food out of. So let me read that last verse just to make sure we really hear what is said and what's not said there. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in the feeding trough 
because there was no place for them in the end. Note, it does not tell us where they were other than the fact that there was a feeding trough involved. Verse eight, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. Have you noticed, by the way, the angels always pop in on people and say, don't be afraid. And I'm going to say, well, stop jumping in and scaring us to death. Why don't you, okay? Um, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. That word is the gospel is what that word actually means. You and Gelion. I bring you the good news. I bring you gospel of great joy, for that will be for all the people, right? Here's Luke speaking of the Gentiles, not just the Jewish people, all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a feeding trough in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the same that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, and it had been told them. Let me tell you something. When we had our, um, when our, our first was born in uh, self-regional hospital, I can remember that since at our church, we had a lot of medical professionals in our church that it was like, oh, Travis and Amanda had their first child. And it was just like every five minutes, hey, I'm such and such. I work down the hall. Heard you guys had a baby. I'd like to see you. And, and we're all like, oh my goodness, can we lock the door? Can we, you know, something. It was overwhelming. It was, it was wonderful. We were thankful for all the love, but just people kept coming in, kept coming in, kept coming in. Can you just imagine Mary, who has just delivered her baby, her mama's not in town, she's not at her house, she, she doesn't have the crib set up, she's got a feeding trough, and all of a sudden, here's a knock on the door. Oh, good, maybe the Lord has sent somebody to help. Here's some stinky, smelly guys who live out in the fields together. Ladies, if you think about the men that live in your house, just one of them is bad enough. Imagine a bunch of them living outside, taking care of sheep. These guys are bad, okay? this is who God says, first and foremost, I'm coming for you. Before I tell a king, before I tell a prophet, before I tell a pastor, before I tell a priest, we want the lowliest of people whose job has to be on the outskirt of town. A savior has been born to people like you. And this is to show the type of way that Jesus came to this earth. There's a lot of common misperceptions, I believe, about Jesus' birth. If we go all the way back to that nativity set that we saw uh, lit up in Christmas lights at the beginning. And let me give you a few of these really quick. Number one, Jesus was probably not born on December 25th. Now, as you pick yourself up off the floor, let me tell you why that is. There was a clue that just said in verse eight that the shepherds were out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. In that part of the world, if you keep your sheep uh, by night, that means that it's summertime. Okay, that's kind of the, the clue there that it's actually summer, most likely, when they would do that. Now, um, so what does that mean? Where does December 25th come from? It seems like in the Roman Empire, December 25th was another holiday 
that when all of a sudden Christianity rose to prominence in the religion, they just said, well, we'll take that day and we're going to kind of take it over and we're going to celebrate Jesus was born on that day. There's really no historical data that says December 25th is actually Jesus's birthday. Now you say, pastor, you have just ruined my childhood, my adulthood. You, you ruined every hood I got. Like what am I supposed to do? I, I think at some level, um, some of you just want me too much of a stretch. I had um, I had members in my family who that were born decades ago during a time when people didn't write down birthdays as much as they do now. Okay, so there were some people that I, I had a some grandparents who were like, well, they're not really sure. They knew I was born sometime in April, so we just chose <laughs> April the eleventh. That's my birthday. They didn't, you know, and, and so that's not too far ago, even in our country where people, it wasn't that big of a deal. So back then, it's not like that Hallmark was trying to decide how many times you were going to celebrate someone's birthday. So they didn't write down the date as necessarily as we do. So most likely Jesus' birth was not on December 25th. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't mean we can't celebrate it. We need to celebrate it. But also, as we, we, we realize. Um, it is very doubtful that snow was probably falling at Jesus' birth. I know that a lot of our songs would say that and a lot of other things that, uh, and it just sounds very nostalgic, but most likely in Israel, if he was born in the summer months, doubtful snow on snow on snow was falling to the ground. And, this, and, the, and the earth was probably not as hard as iron. Even though it's wonderful and it's pretty and it's all good, I don't think that's probably uh, at the nativity set. Um, Jesus was placed in a manger, but that doesn't necessarily mean a barn. Once again, the word manger means feeding trough. So he might have been born in a barn, but also in that area, and some animals were uh, lived in caves, actually like just rock caves sort of hewn out that animals would go in there and they, and some of the farmers would place feeding troughs in there. So Jesus might've been born in a cave or actually in a barn that served as the house for animals coming in and eating. So it could have been even a cave uh, from that standpoint. Um, wise men were not present at the birth. Okay. And you may go, what do you mean? My nativity set says they were. I know that it does, and mine does too. Um, and and but let me let me show you. Um, if you if you go back to Matthew chapter two, I'll, I'll show you this, and, and you'll you'll see why we know this for sure. Uh, in Matthew chapter two, as we mentioned, this is when the wise men come in. Verse one, it says, "Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying." Where is he who has been born a king of the Jews? For we saw his star, and when it rose, have come to worship him. So we saw a star when he was born, and we've been traveling all the way from the east. They didn't get the overnight flight, okay, from their country to this country, okay? <laughs> Took a little bit longer than that. Um, so verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now look at that phrase again. All Jerusalem was troubled by these men coming into town. Now just... Hang on to that phrase there. Verse 4, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, well, the Bible says in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained for them what time, when did that star appear? 
And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child, the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. Get this picture. He's leaving and going into Egypt, and then soon he's going to have an exodus out of Egypt. Okay. Then it says, verse 14, he rose, he took him. Um, verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and <coughs> all that region who were what? Two years old or under. So what does this say? Remember when it said that Herod was saying, now, now when, when did you see that star was born? And then they never get the answer there. <coughs> the fact that at this point, Herod then goes and kills every young boy two years old and uh, younger means that it's most likely that by the time the wise men got there, Jesus was a two-year-old, which actually to me makes the, the situation even more I don't know. I would just love to, I would have loved to have just seen it. Right. Because I can just imagine a two-year-old, somebody coming and bringing gold, frankincense and myrrh. And even though it's Jesus, right, here's this gift. They're not here at the birth. They're here two years later when this young family is trying to get situated. And then all of a sudden here come these gifts. A couple of things to point out that will be done. Uh, we don't know how many wise men there were in our nativity set. There, how many always they are three, three. Why do we get three? three gifts because there's three gifts gold frankincense and myrrh so we assume there's three it never says three in here it just says wise men and it says there were enough that all of the whole city of jerusalem were troubled by it there's a good chance it could be as little as two it could have been as many as a hundred there literally it just says a group of wise men came and the whole city was stirred up by this and they brought gold frankincense and myrrh and we just assume that means three we don't know could have been four could have been five could have been 200 we don't know when they will figure it out and it'll just be super, super, oh, there you go. Um, um, but it's fine to have it in a set, but it's a great kind of story point uh, to really share with it. Last things, here's the correct perceptions for us to know about this time of Christ. Number one, no man can get the credit for Jesus's birth. This was something that God did. This is not a man who got to be a, a superman. This was God becoming a man. And only God could get the credit for his birth. Number two, we could not make it to God. So God came to us. There's nothing in our efforts that could ever reach the throne of heaven. So God left his throne and became man to reach us. Number three, Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. He's not one or the other. He is fully God. He is fully man so that he could only do what he could accomplish. Number four, Jesus came on a mission to reverse Eden's curse. Everything that was done wrought in the garden by the first Adam, Jesus becomes the second Adam and sets everything right. And then finally, number five, Jesus is proof that God desires to dwell with us. Kicked out of the garden because we don't want to listen to his rules, excluded from his presence, God takes his presence from heaven and comes back down to dwell among us so that we can now go up to heaven and dwell with him forever. But to make that happen, he had to come dwell with us, so therefore we could dwell 
with him. And so when we come down to this issue of the incarnation, this is utmost important to our story because this places Jesus in the rightful place of Messiah, the promised Messiah, the miraculous son of God of whom only God could get the credit for his birth. And because he was born, he went to, he lived a perfect life. He would go to the cross for our sins. He would rise victoriously on the third day, ascended into heaven. And folks, he is coming back one day to bring all those back so that finally we can be reunited in the presence of God forevermore. So that is point number one, incarnation. We're going to go into next week about the preparation, about how Jesus started his earthly ministry and how, how that plays into our own story as well. And so um, you guys have been awesome. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to get after it. Um, God, we thank you so much for sending Jesus. We thank you, God, that you would um, uh, cause him to leave heaven and to be able to come down to earth uh, to help us to see and understand and to know God. And so, God, we thank you that you did not wait on us to get our act together before being reunited, but we were able to be reunited in your presence because, Jesus, you humbled yourself uh, to leave heaven, to come to earth, born as a baby in a small town, placed in a feeding trough, uh, and, and the, the first people at your birth were some of the lowliest of um, of what civilization would have thought of at that time. And that just reminds us, God, that you come to people on the fringes. And I thank you for that because I have felt like I've been on the fringes for most of my life, the least and unlikely and, and those that are forgotten by so many. And yet that's who you came looking for. And so Jesus, thank you for leaving the throne of heaven so that you could come and take the place in a feeding trough, go to the cross, go to the empty tomb, so that we could find life and be reunited in the presence of God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Travis. Thank, Thank you. you guys. Thank you. I appreciate y'all, and uh, we'll see you we next week. We appreciate you. And hopefully we'll see each other in the flesh very, very soon. <laughs>